The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Uh, All right, let's get into it. I know this is a small room today, uh, and that's okay. Uh, We are going to still do what we would always do, which is get into God's Word. So please grab a Bible. I hope you brought your own. Open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you did not bring a Bible, uh, you can grab one of the hardback black ones under every chair. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is on page 952 in those Bibles, but we want you to see this. We want you to open it up uh, to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. As you're turning there, we've made it to chapter two. It only took us a month. So this is going to take us a while to get through this entire book. Uh, I hope you are excited about it. I am. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter two picks up on what happened in 1 Corinthians chapter one. Good job. Okay, I need you to help me today, all right? And and I'm really encouraged by your mathematical skills. So uh, this is good news. But let me give you a recap on chapter one because it all builds All of this builds. Like, I think sometimes we think, oh, I should just be able to show up to church whenever I want to, and it all makes sense to These books build on each other. Like, this is a letter. This is one correspondence piece to these people, and so we need to know what's happening. Chapter one, here's uh, the real quick recap. It's written by a guy named Paul. Paul was a prolific church planter in the first century. Okay, this guy planted uh, like 20, maybe more churches, uh, and he wrote much of what we call the New Testament, the the New Testament to our Bibles. He's the guy who wrote most of it. Um, But remember, if you remember what we talked about in week one, Paul didn't start off like that. Like he didn't start off as Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, planting churches like a hoss all over the Roman Empire. No, he started as Saul, this brilliant and zealous Jewish man who was known for his persecution of Christians, right? Like he he sought out and he arrested and he played a role in the execution of Christians up until the moment when he was converted. Okay, so not exactly the poster child for Jesus right off the gate, right out the gate, right? He, he, he became a Christian and then he kind of took it to the next level. After his conversion, okay, uh, he had about two decades of training in obscurity. He kind of falls off the biblical map for about 20 years and then he shows back up as kind of the apostle Paul. So he's discipled for about 20 years. He's working and he's learning and he's growing. And then he starts planting churches all over the Roman empire that are wildly successful. And, and we, we looked at this in week one. In Acts chapter 18, he makes his way to a town called Corinth. Corinth. Uh, and Corinth is a rather, a, a rather newer city or, um, or colony of the Roman Empire at the time when Paul shows up. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about Corinth. It's attracting entrepreneurs. Okay, it's attracting those who want to make money. It's attracting those who are looking for the good life. Like there's, there's lots of transplants from all over the empire. Freed slaves are being shipped there in, in droves because they can make money and they can find success. Uh, it's actually kind of a similar situation to Denver. A lot of people moving in. Commerce is on the rise. There's money to be made. It's kind of this up and coming city. And in that context, Paul shows up and he starts the Corinthian church church. Uh, And he spends like a year and a half 
uh, planting this church, and then he moves on, and he leaves them, and he moves on to plant more churches. So now we get this letter. We're fast forward three years. So he planted for about a year and a half. Three years later, he's writing this letter to this church that he planted because he's hearing reports that some stuff has gotten a little screwy in their church. Like some stuff has gotten a little bit messy. Where there had once been unity, there were now factions forming. Okay? Where where there had once been a desire for the message of the gospel, there was now a thirst for entertainment and showmanship in their church. And and where there had once been humility about their beginnings as kind of nobodies in the empire, there was now this jostling for prestige and honor and power, like pride was creeping into their church. And so this is what Paul is writing to address in this letter. He's writing to address these reports of some unhealth that's moved into their church. And and in the first chapter, he battles this current state with kind of three main arguments, okay? Uh, Two of them we've covered. One of them we'll see in the beginning of chapter uh, two. He argues first for the folly of the cross, That's what he argued a couple weeks ago. He says the message of the gospel, of the cross of Christ, is kind of foolish to those who see it from the outside. To those who are perishing is Paul's language. Like when looked at through the lenses of the culture, what we believe is kind of silly. It's kind of foolish. It's folly. But once the Lord starts to get a hold of your heart, it becomes powerful. It might sound foolish, but, but when Jesus gets a hold of you, it becomes power. So that's the first thing he does. He does the folly of the cross. The second thing he says is the folly of the church. We talked about this last week. The fact that God had chosen not the best and brightest of the empire, but rather he had chosen those who were too humble to take any credit for themselves. That he chose the humble That's the foolishness of the church. And now in the first verses of chapter two, this chapter break, I think is a little problematic. It really, I think should come after verse five, but that's okay. They didn't consult me on how to break up the chapters of the Bible. But the third movement, as it were, of this, this, this defense that Paul is making is what we'll call the folly of preaching. Okay, Uh, he moves on, Paul moves on to how the proclamation of this gospel is actually folly. It's foolish as well. So we've got the foolishness of the cross, the foolishness of the church, and now the foolishness of preaching. And for my type A folks, any type A'ers out there? Feel good about that? Okay, scratch the itch. Here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you two movements for today, okay? This is all we're going to talk about is two things. Uh, We're going to talk about the message of our preaching, and we're going to talk about the method of of our preaching, the message and the method. And we're going to start with the message, okay? Uh, We're going to dig into this, see what uh, God has for us. Here we go. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 1. Look at your text. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So, so those first words in the first couple verses, the first words, when I came to you, what that does is it puts us in a time and a place. He's talking about when he came to them. 
And so we want to, before we can understand what he's going to say, we have to understand, again, where we are in the story, the context. And so I know we spent a lot of time in the book of Acts in week one, but I need us to go back to the book of Acts to figure out what's going on here. So grab your Bible, if you've already got it open, leave your finger in 1 Corinthians and turn to the left to the book of Acts, okay? The book of Acts, we're gonna be in chapter 18. Uh, That's on page 927 in those black ones, okay? But uh, we're gonna come back to 1 Corinthians, but I'm not gonna put all these verses up on the screen. I need you to see this with your eyes. Acts chapter 18 uh, is gonna be really important. Acts 18 is where Paul comes to Corinth. This is where he first shows up to this city and plants this church. So Acts chapter 18 is where we're going to be. What I want us to, and we covered a lot of Acts in in week one, but what I want us to focus in is actually not in Acts 18 where Paul comes to Corinth, but Acts 17, okay? The thing that happens right before he goes to Corinth. So look at this with me. We're going to start in verse 16. Uh, And I'm just going to start reading and uh, make some comments as we go. So here we go. Acts 17, verse 16. Now, uh, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So Paul's in Athens at this point. He's going to go from Athens to Corinth, but his last stop before Corinth is the city of Athens. And it says that Athens is full of idols. Now that's important because there's a quote from uh, some, some, some uh, Greek and Roman scholars, non-biblical, who say that in Athens, it was easier to find a God than a man. This is how many gods the the Roman culture worshipped in their pantheon. There were gods for everything. So the whole city is filled with idols. That's what Paul is walking into. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19, and they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. Okay, so now stop for just a second there. The Areopagus uh, in Athens is also known as Mars Hill. So if you've heard churches that have been called Mars Hill, they're stealing from Acts chapter 17. The Areopagus is known as Mars Hill. And this is a place where the town council like the, uh, the intellectual elites in Athens would meet and they would gather together. Think the, the, the center point for the best and the brightest of Athens. They bring Paul, this babbler who's preaching new divinities. They bring him, they bring him to the Areopagus and he'll begin again. So look, verse 19, they bring him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange ideas to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul's going to preach in this place. Maybe what's known as his most famous and eloquent sermon that's recorded in the book of Acts. This is, we are about to hear from Paul his best this is the, 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 the sermon that you share on Facebook because everybody needs to hear this. This is the sermon, okay? This is his most famous sermon in the scriptures. Acts 17, starting in verse 22. 
So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Okay, so that's a good cover your basis God, right? We've got six billion gods. May as well throw one in there that's just a catch-all to the unknown God. That's what this God is, okay? What, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, there's a lot of debate as to what the unknown God is uh, officially. We don't need to go into that. But the point I want to make is that Paul is establishing at this point common ground with the audience, with his hearers, by focusing on something they would have known and understand. He immediately points to something culturally that would have brought them all together. Okay, that's what Paul is doing. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And then he's now going to go on and he's going to quote a Greek philosopher. Okay, so verse 28, he's quoting one of their Greek philosophers. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. And then he's going to actually next quote a poem that is written to the god Zeus. So he's, right, he's going to quote a poem written to uh, a different god, a pagan god, but he's going to ascribe it to uh, Yahweh. He says this in, verse, uh, in, in the second half of verse 25. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Okay, Paul just, I know this is a lot. Stay with me. I promise there's payoff if you pay attention. Paul is offering a sermon here that scholars have called the standard of excellence in depth and relevance. This is what Paul is giving. He is preaching a message with great relevance and brilliance. He's calling upon points of connection with his audience. He's using illustrations from their culture. That would have been, it'd been like him talking about uh, the Oscar nominations, right? He like, he's, he's, he's calling to their poets. He's calling to their philosophers. He's, he's, he's illustrating with things that everybody in the Areopagus would have understood and known and trusted already. Uh, this is well done. This is like good preaching. I've been to seminary. This is how they teach you to preach. They teach you to engage your culture and your audience like this. So Paul is doing a really good job. Okay, he's getting an A in preaching class right now. But then look at verse 29, because uh, he continues and it gets really interesting. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Again, these are things that they would have understand. They would have understand God's made of stone and gold and silver. They would have seen these things and known these things well. Verse 30, the times of, ignorant, of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by, right, by raising him from the dead. Okay. Uh, he uses these illustrations that would have been familiar. He launches into a sermon. He says, repent, okay? Judgment is coming. This is like good baptisty, fire and brimstone. Judgment is coming. He talks about the resurrection of Jesus. He's, he's preaching the message of the gospel here. And in verse 32, here's the response of those in the Areopagus who heard him. Now, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, yeah, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and, with, and others with them. Uh, so he preaches the best message that we've ever heard from Paul and a couple of guys in a gal believe. That's what the text says. And what's interesting about the end of chapter 17 is that it feels out of form for Paul feels out of form for the New Testament, really, for the book of Acts. Uh, I mean, in contrast with Paul's previous successes in his ministry, this kind of feels a little bit blah. Like, he just preached the magnus opus of his preaching career, and a couple of people responded. One of my seminary professors uh, in one of his books said this, it's easy to read verses 32 through 34 and feel some disappointment especially when we recall the triumphant responses to the gospel at Pentecost. See, normally in the book of Acts, the preaching of the gospel would conjure up one of two responses. Almost every time in the New Testament, the preaching of the gospel goes out, it comes back with one, or two, one of these two responses. One, people in mass would believe and be saved. Like Peter preaches, 3,000 people get saved. Like it's madness. I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable. There would have been massive revival. So that's the one hand. Or there's this other thing that would sometimes happen uh, and, and, and it would be blatant, outright anger and aggression towards the messenger and they'd want to kill him. It would either be the masses repent or they'd drive him out of the town and try and kill him with stones. Like that's what would happen. And I said in week one that this is how you know you have a successful preaching ministry, right? Either the masses repent or they try and kill you. It's just the two things, the two options. It's like really good or really bad. There's no room for the middle. But what happens after what was arguably one of Paul's most impressive and famous sermons is seemingly lackluster results. It's just kind of like a couple guys and a gal said, yeah, we'll hear some more about this. And that's it. And, and they do want to hear more from him, but what does he do? Well, look at verse one of chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He's like, forget it. I'm out of here. And he leaves Athens and moves on to Corinth. Now, uh, flip back to 1 Corinthians Okay, we're done in Acts chapter 17 and 18. Um, as Paul leaves, there, there's about a 40 to 50 mile walk from Athens to Corinth. Okay, so uh, a couple of days probably is what it would have taken him to walk that journey. Uh, and just for a moment, just imagine what's going on in his head as he has just preached 
the paint off the walls, preach the best message that he ever could have crafted, masterful to seemingly lackluster results. And now he's moving on to the next city. With that in mind, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at verses one and two in 1 Corinthians 2 again. And, and with that in mind, listen to the text and see if it makes more sense. 1 Corinthians 2, 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay, question. In Athens, do you think Paul came with lofty speech? Yeah. Thanks, Bob. You're my guy. In Athens, did Paul come with wisdom? Absolutely. Absolutely. He preached well. He preached accurately. He preached with the right cultural engagement. He preached a good message. Goodness, he ended with the best part. He ended with the resurrection. Did you notice anything he missed? If you read it again, don't do it right now because we're already away from that. But if you read it again, he never mentions Jesus Christ by name and he never mentions the crucifixion. And now he shows up at the next city after what one scholar calls Paul's flop in Athens, deciding to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. See, I think this is Paul's intentional response to what has just happened in Athens. And, and this is the first point of the folly of our message. The folly of our message is that it is Christ crucified. Christ crucified. Now, is Paul saying that, that it's unimportant to connect with the people that you share the gospel with? No, he's not saying that. Is he saying that we shouldn't consider our words and be careful about how we proclaim the, that message? No, I don't think that's what he's saying. Is Paul saying that the resurrection shouldn't be proclaimed? Certainly not. I mean, certainly not. Like we shouldn't only preach the cross, right? Like that'd be silly. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, we're gonna find one of the most extensive treatments of the resurrection in the New Testament. So, so what's the point then? Here, here's what, here's what I'll, I'll, I'll say. Never let relevance overshadow the gospel. Never let relevance overshadow the gospel. When it comes to how we put the message of the gospel out to our friends and to our family and to our neighbors, like be careful about trying to make it cool or, or hip, or maybe the best word is relevant. Now, I don't, I don't think Paul's tactics in Acts 17 were an attempt to be over-relevant. I don't think Paul looks back on Acts 17 and says, throw that out. Don't ever do that. Like, I don't think that's what we get here. But I, 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 I think he made some corrections on that 50-mile walk. Like, I think he reflected on what he did and probably said, hey, I shouldn't do less than that, but maybe I should do something more than what I just did. And, and, and I, I see this today in the church. Relevance has become an idol that way too many churches in 
America, specifically in the West today, bow their knee to? Relevance, cool, hip. Like it's become the gold standard in, in many churches in our culture. And the effect has been a breed of churchgoers with unhealthy expectations about what the church is supposed to provide for them. It has created a consumeristic mentality. So here's the basic attitude of kind of the evangelical Christian churchgoer who is kind of caught up in this relevance world, okay? This is their, their, their maybe how they would feel. The church exists to give me an awesome experience, right? So I want it to be easy, okay? Good preaching, good parking, nice facility, attractive people. Like, make it easy on me. Make it easy on me. And I want the music to be catchy, okay? Can we make that happen? Like some poppy, catchy tunes, and I would like some haze. How else am I going to know if the spirit is moving, okay? So I need a little bit of haze. And, and while the, the superstar worship team sings, I just want to sit comfortably in my chair and listen. Listen to the best music out there. And then I would like the sermon anywhere from 20 to 22 minutes, okay? Not going to happen here. All right, but like, that's kind of the go-to. But don't make me feel uncomfortable about my life in that sermon. In fact, uh, maybe don't even talk too much about Jesus. Let's just discuss something that we all have an issue with, that we can all agree upon, okay? So like relationships or how God wants to make all my dreams come true. Let's just talk about that kind of stuff. But don't talk to me about sin. I don't want to talk about the cross. I don't want to talk about anything that w- where I might have to do some, some deep business in the levels of my heart that I, that I like to mute out with my comfort, okay? I'd rather not have that. And then dismiss us in a timely fashion, okay? Get us out of here on time because kickoff is on its way and I've got the DVR, but I like to see it live, okay? So get my kid out of the Noah's Ark jungle gym, right? Or off the Babel wall climbing wall, right? Like just get him off of there. Thanks for letting the vegetable teach him some good morals, all right, I'd like that to be a good friend and to obey me. But, but, but listen, I just want church that's comfortable. I just want church that's good. I just want church that's excellent. I just want church that motivates me. And it's not too far off. Some of that's silly, but it's not too far off. Uh, completely seriously, I, I heard uh, of a church that did Easter a couple years ago in 3D. Well, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I looked online. They legitimately handed out those red and blue glasses at the door as people came in. And then there were times throughout the service where they would instruct them to put on their 3D glasses. And on the screens, it was like Jesus rising from the dead in 3D. I don't know. I don't know if I could handle that. Like, I don't know if I could handle that. Seriously, though. I don't think Paul here is criticizing what he was doing in Athens so much as saying that there was something he missed. I don't think he's doing, like we should do anything less than what Paul did in Acts 17. I think we should try to connect with people. I think we should try and engage our culture and help things make sense to those who we talk to about Jesus. I don't think we should do less than what Paul did in Acts 17, but I do think we should do more. You see, while the method is important, it should never overshadow the message. So Paul's like, hey, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. If we get everything else right and we miss that, it's all off the table. 
Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that's the folly of our preaching. That's the folly of our preaching, the message of Christ crucified. Why is it folly? Because it doesn't attract a crowd like 3D does. The hard-hitting message of the cross and a crucified Savior is not warm and fuzzies inside. It's folly. Remember a couple weeks ago, unless you're being saved. So the folly of, of our preaching is found in the message of Christ crucified, but the folly of our preaching is also found in the method, okay? The method of how we preach that message is actually important, and this is something that Paul adjusts as well, something unique to how Paul preaches in Corinth. So we're going to look at the rest of our passage, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 3 through 5. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, so Paul is again using some of the language from chapter one. And he says, I, I was with you in weakness. I came to you in Weakness. He's saying, I didn't come to you as the hero, the Apostle Paul with my cape flapping in the wind, right? I didn't come like that. I came as, as a weak person to demonstrate the spirit and power. And he does this so that their faith wouldn't rest on his personality, but rather in the power of God. That's what he says. So essentially he's saying this, hey, I feel like I could have shown up and preached with such authority and power that I might have persuaded you or convinced you or even connected with you in a way that, that would have led you to faith. I feel like I could have done that. But then ultimately, they would have let their faith rest on him, on Paul's wisdom, on his preaching, on his abilities but he wanted their faith to rest in the power of God. So he says, I showed up in weakness. The demonstration of the spirit and power is not based on how entertaining or informative or compelling the speaker is, but on the power of God transforming the hearts of the hearer. We preach the message, Christ crucified, out of the method, weakness. The method is weakness. Because we, we all kind of know that God uses our strengths, right? Like we all kind of know this intuitively, our talents, our abilities. I mean, heck, we're going to get into 1 Corinthians 12 and Paul goes on like, like this tirade about spiritual gifts being used to build up the body of Christ, the church, so, so Paul's not against like strengths here. He's for strengths. He's for spiritual gifts. So listen, if you're extroverted and uber friendly, we'll get you on the greeting team. Right? Like that feels like a good fit. You're strong at that. You're musically or technologically inclined. Worship team might be your thing. Like it's a great way to serve. Hey, you love to take care of people and serve behind the scenes. You don't want to make a big deal. Yeah, you, you want maybe in the hospitality team. Might be shoveling the walks out front. 
That's great. You're passionate about kids, knowing them, letting them know about Jesus. We'll dress you up like a vegetable, put you in the back with the kids. We don't have any vegetable costumes. I'm just joking. But like maybe kids, like we want to serve and disciple the children here. If you can crush a six pack of Mountain Dew, stay up all night and are great at ultimate Frisbee, youth ministry is your thing. Okay. That's what it takes. That's what it takes. I did it a long time. God, God uses our strengths. He definitely uses our strengths. I do not want to diminish how God has gifted each one of us to, a, to affect the building up of his body. No way, I don't want to do that at all. But listen, I, 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 the reality is this. I don't get to be up here without, uh, with this face mic week, on, week in and week out without at least some gifting and ability at communication. It'd be silly if we just said, ah, forget all strengths. But I just want to say, very often we overlook that God uses our weaknesses as much, if not more, than he does our strengths. God uses our strengths, but he also uses our weaknesses. He uses your flaws. He uses your failures. Actually, those can sometimes be more powerful than your strengths being used. Because of what we said last week, if it's our weakness that God uses, then we can't boast in ourselves. If he uses our weakness, then we can't say, man, I'm great. We just say, I came to you with weakness and fear and trembling, not knowing much, but knowing Jesus. It's crazy uh, for me as the guy who gets to stand up here and preach and teach, uh, how much more you all seem to respond to the stories I tell when I'm a complete loser as opposed to when I do something good, like almost 10 to one in favor of Chris the idiot, okay? Like it's just, I mean, like I'll tell you a story of something I've succeeded at and the response is, meh, right? And then I'm like, listen to my exploits of failure. And you're like, take notes, right? <laughs> like writing it all down, you're getting all teary. You tell me in the hallway how that moved you. Like you love Chris the fool, more than Chris the hero. And I would, I would spin that around to the rest of us, okay? Whatever weakness you have, places you're not successful, sins that you have committed, mistakes that you have made, places where you've just fallen flat on your face. Let me pose this question. What if those are some of the things that God wants to use the most in your ministry? Here's the case in point, okay? Uh, last year, after my burnout last year, I, I didn't preach for about six months. Just kind of spun out of control. Uh, I was meeting with a counselor and a care team at the time, and one of, my, uh, one of the Acts 29 pastors who was on uh, my care team was a guy named Hunter. Um, and, and he asked me in one of our meetings, uh, as I started getting closer to getting back up here and starting to preach again, after six months of not doing it, he said, hey, like, what do you think is gonna be different about preaching? Like, how are you feeling about it? Like, what do you think is going to be different when you get back? And so I used an illustration with him that I've used with a number of you when we've, we've talked about this. And I said, I think the difference in my preaching will be the difference between a band's studio recorded album and going to see them live at Red Rocks. Okay. So take whatever your favorite band is. All right. doesn't matter what it is. 
uh, take your favorite band, your favorite artist, throw out the Super Bowl halftime show from last week and just start fresh, okay? But find your favorite band, your artist, and think of your favorite studio album, record, you know, MP3, single, whatever that is, okay? And then just consider the time and the energy and the money that they spent on that thing to make it what it is, right? They record and they re-record and they overdub and they beat sync and they auto-tune so that it's perfect and there's mixing and there's post-production and there's mastering and there's tens of thousands of dollars going into recording that three and a half minute gem that you love. Now take that same song, okay? Same band, and then consider the live performance. Okay, it's the same song. It is, it should be the same song. Same musicians, maybe. But it's just, in a live performance, it's not quite as polished, right? Maybe the drummer is just off a little bit. Not that Jesse would ever do that, but you know, a different drummer, perhaps, professional drummer, just off a little bit. It's not quite as produced as you get on the studio recorded album. So somebody's voice cracks or something in the middle of a song. It's not quite as perfect as the studio version. Maybe the sound guy's off that night and something's a little too high or a little too low and it just doesn't sound quite right. And so I told Hunter, I used that illustration and told Hunter that I really, really like the studio version of myself. And I'm much less comfortable with the live me. Because with the studio me, I can... I can curate what you see and hear. I can edit and I can auto-tune and I can get pretty close to tightening that thing up to perfect. But with the live me, I mean, who knows what dumb stuff might come out of my mouth. And then Hunter said something really profound. This is what he says. He says, but Chris, people love their favorite band live. They spend so much more money to go see them live than they ever spend on the studio recorded album because there's so much more power in a live performance. And then he says, and they'll love you better live too. And I think a year ago, what led me to some of my burnout was, was me trying to be studio me the pastor who had all the answers, the pastor who, who, who knew the messages to preach, the pastor who could handle it all, who could keep this thing going and growing. But all the while, I'm just covering over me, live me, my weakness, and, and therefore the power of God in my weakness. Hear me on this. Our proclivity is to show off our strengths and hide our weaknesses. That's for every one of us. Our proclivity is to show off our strengths and hide our weaknesses. But it would seem that Paul, in coming in weakness and fear and trembling, preaching only Jesus and him crucified, that it was in, in that weakness that the church actually saw the demonstration of the spirit and power. And it led them 
not to put their faith in Paul, but in the power of God. So church, I I just feel this truly today. We are called to proclaim, to preach the gospel. The word here, to preach, actually, to proclaim this, is not a word that that is used when Jesus teaches his sermon on the mount. It's not like for the guy who stands up here with the face mic preaching. It's for every single one of us. The Greek word for proclaim is the one that is used for whenever any of us share about Jesus in our lives, in our ministries. And so we are all called to proclaim, to preach this stuff, to demonstrate and declare this message of Christ crucified. And I think the best method for all of us to do is like Paul to lean into our weaknesses when it comes to how we demonstrate and declare. A friend of mine says this, uh, never trust a man until you've seen his limp. Never trust a man until you've seen his limp. And I think that's pretty close to right on. When it comes to your friends, and your family members, and your neighbors, and, and your coworkers, and really everyone, even, even your church family, even this community here. They're not looking for the coolest, hippest, Jesus is my homeboy kind of junk. They're not looking for you to ha- be perfect, right? Perfect family, perfect hair, okay? Perfect cultivated social media feed, Right? perfect example for everything. But you just show up and you limp a little bit. You show off that gimp that you've got going on. Your message is, and I've got all the answers. Like what arrogance is there there? But instead you just say, hey, I am a mess. But God chose me. I am weak. But my God is strong. I'm not much, but I know a God who moves in power. If you limp into those conversations, there will be power there. That's the spirit and power on display in our weakness. That message plus that method will lead to a movement of God's spirit that is incapable to be made when all we focus on is flash and entertainment and big, and awesome. And I, for, for one, would prefer power over that performance any day of the week. Let's pray towards that end, church. Father, um, thank you for, for Paul's, what I think is a progressive understanding of how better to do ministry as he moves from Acts 17 to Acts 18, as he moves from Athens to Corinth, and as he is brilliant in 17, but I would say wise in 18. It's not that he gets less good at what he does, but he shows great wisdom when he leans on the power of the Spirit instead of his own strength, in the strength of God instead of his own brilliance. And I pray for me, I pray for us as a church that, that as we go into our, our, our neighborhoods, as we go to work tomorrow and see our friends and see our coworkers, as we go to school and, and mingle with, with other classmates, Lord, I pray that we would, we would limp in a little bit. God, that we wouldn't show up with capes in the wind like sometimes I feel like I need to. 
but rather we would, we would come with weakness and with fear and trembling, which really just mean humility. Humbled by where we came from, humbled by the fact that you would choose us and humbled as we bring our message to a world that desperately needs it. Lord, I pray for uh, boldness for all of us. Boldness to be weak. That's so much easier to feign strength than it is to display weakness. God, would you empower your body to do this more and more as the day continues. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this word. Pray that it, it, it transforms us deeply in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.